Lord, that you are speaking to us through our interactions with one another, through the singing that we do, the music that's played. And Lord, we ask now that you would continue to speak to us through your word. We thank you that the spirit that inspired these words is alive in us who believe. And Lord, we pray that that spirit would speak to us today. That it would bring uh, comfort in areas where we need to be comforted and challenge in places where we need to be challenged. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, this morning is our last sermon on the book of Ecclesiastes. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I... been it's been uh it's been hard sometimes right been hard to allow this word to speak to us it's hevel that's right in these last couple of sermons during the month of december as we've been finishing up these series uh, we've been connecting the themes that we've explored throughout ecclesiastes with the very familiar themes of advent and christmas Ecclesiastes asks difficult and dark questions about our life here in this world. And the rest of the Bible, in particular the good news of Jesus Christ, is the answer to all of the questions that the writer in Ecclesiastes asks. One writer says this. Can you push the over arrow and see if it's going to work? We're having problems today. Oh, it's going to work. Great. Robert Schwartz says this, Ecclesiastes asks questions that can be answered only by a future revelation of God and clears the road for this revelation by smashing any and all false hopes to pieces. Ecclesiastes is the Bible's night before Christmas. The teacher shows us human self-sufficiency stretched to its absolute limit and found sadly wanting. Human self-sufficiency, Lisa, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, right? As we've seen over the last couple of months, one of the main themes of the whole book of Ecclesiastes is to remind us that if we live our lives from only the perspective of life under the sun, we're going to be frustrated. Life here under the sun and everything here under the sun is hevel. For those of you who are visitors with us today, the word hevel is the Hebrew word that is translated meaningless or vanity in our English translations. The entire book of Ecclesiastes begins with hevel, hevel, says the teacher. Everything is hevel. And this word hevel uh, literally means vapor or smoke. And this image of vapor or smoke is to remind us that life is temporary and that life is unmanageable. We can't tell smoke where to go. It goes wherever it wants to go. And so when the, uh, the teacher tells us that, that life is hevel, he's not saying that it has no meaning. What he's saying, it's impossible for us to give it any meaning. It's impossible for us to make meaning on our own. Ecclesiastes is a gift to us, and it's in the scriptures because, as Robert Short says, it smashes all of our false hopes into pieces. The teacher has made it clear to us that if our hope is placed in what can be found here under the sun, we're going to be profoundly disappointed. 
In Ecclesiastes, we looked at many things that the teacher tried in order to bring meaning and purpose to life, pleasure and success. The teacher says that he's tried everything. He's tried it all, and none of it works. Nothing works to bring life, meaning, and purpose here under the sun. But two weeks ago, we took notice that there was one thing. The teacher thought that he had tried everything, but there was one thing that the teacher didn't try. Do you remember what it was? Love. The teacher never tried love. When you read the book of Ecclesiastes, God is real. He is the creator. He is the author of life. But God is distant. He is far off. He is unknowable. The teacher in Ecclesiastes did not imagine that God was a God who extended his love to us and invites us to love him and to love others as well. The teacher tried all sorts of things to fill up this hevel life, but he never tried love. And it's here in this life lived in love for God and for others where we can find meaning here under the sun. And that brings us to this other important phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes, under the sun. The teacher tells us early on in chapter 1 that he has limited all of his observations to what he can see and what he can touch here under the sun. And because of that, the teacher doesn't see the whole picture. Everything the teacher tells us is true, but there is more to the story. Because there is a reality beyond the sun that breaks into our world. And that reality is what the rest of the Bible is all about. And I want to begin this morning by looking at the Gospel of John. Turn, to me to John, turn with me to John chapter 1. It's the fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, Matthew and Luke, the gospel writers, they they tell us all of those familiar stories that we love about Christmas, about the angels coming to Mary and to Joseph and the wise men and the shepherds, and the manger, and there's no room in the inn, and all of those things that we are familiar, uh, familiar with about this Christmas story. John doesn't talk about any of those things. There's no shepherds, or mangers, or stars, or wise men in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John doesn't tell us what happened 2,000 years ago. He tells us what it all means. He tells us about what it meant for God and what it means for the world. In John chapter 1, I'm going to, read, going to read verses 1 through 5 and then also verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word of God took on flesh and lived with us. 
the first words of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In that opening chapter of Genesis, the Bible tells us that God created the heavens and the, and the earth by doing what? By speaking. God spoke his word and the world was made. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God said, let there be the sun and the moon and the stars, and there was sun and moon and stars. God created the world by speaking. And then John, in his gospel, brilliantly begins his gospel in the same way. In the beginning. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through that word, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. John is cluing us in. I'm talking about Genesis here. In the beginning. And then John tells us in verse 14 that this word of God, uh, in which and through which all things were made, this word of God becomes flesh, becomes a living person. And lives with us. The word becomes flesh. What does that mean? What it means is God became flesh. The son of God became flesh. That God became vulnerable. That God became hungry. That God was made hurtable. That God was made frustratable. That God was made betrayable. That God was made subject to temptation. That God was made subject to time and to chance and to evil and to suffering. And that God was made subject even to death. The word of God made flesh. God made killable. When John tells us that the word became flesh, John is telling us that God the Son entered into our hevel world and made himself a part of it. Dorothy Sayers has this to say about the incarnation. For whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and he has played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience from the trivial irritations of family life. Do you know about that? To the cramping restrictions of hard work. You know about that? To the lack of money. Anybody know about that? To the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, and defeat, and despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace, and he thought it well worthwhile. 
In the incarnation, the word of God becomes flesh and he lives with us as one of us. Besides sin, he takes on all of our humanity. Friendship and good food and good drinks and celebration and joys and victories and also frustrations and irritations and disappointments and suffering and trials and even death. Like us, he faced and endured all of these things. The heaven world happened to him. But because he is the word of God, the word of God that was with God in the beginning and who was God in the beginning, because this person became a part of his creation, not only did the heaven happen to him, he also did something to the heaven. Throughout Ecclesiastes, the teacher gave us evidence that life is heaven. Throughout the book, the teacher has spoken of at least five things that are his evidence that life is heaven, that it is like smoke, that it is here today and gone tomorrow, that it is outside of our control. These are five things that he talks about, time and chance and evil and suffering and death and the unknowability of God. As the teacher explored life here under the sun, he experiences all five of these things, and he says these things are facts of life. Each of these are realities that all of us face and endure in one way or another. Sometimes these realities are just kind of annoying. Sometimes they're frustrating, and sometimes they're very harsh and they're very painful. And the teacher has been very clear that there is nothing under the sun that can set us free from these realities. We all experience them. We can't avoid them through pleasure or through success or through religion or through hard work. None of these things can set us free from this heaven character of our world. The realities have always been here. They will always be here. There is nothing new under the sun. There is nothing new under the sun. There is nothing new under the sun, the teacher says. But then the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling under the sun. It turns out, teacher, that there is something new under the sun. That God has plans for this world that you never imagined. That none of us could have ever imagined that God himself would come and dwell with us under the sun. That he would subject himself to all of these frustrating and painful realities, that he would enter into them, that he would feel their heaviness, that he would carry their full weight on himself. We could never have imagined that. The teacher of Ecclesiastes could have never imagined that God would do that, but that's what he did. There is something new under the sun. And as he, the word of God, entered into the world in this way, he transformed the heaven of our world. And he made a new way for human beings to live and to flourish in faith and in hope and in love 
rather than in cynicism and despair and in self-interest. As we finish today, we're going to look at the teacher's five pieces of evidence that life is hevel and see how the word of God, by becoming flesh and dwelling with us, how he faced them and how he transformed them. At Christmas, we remember that the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, eternity itself breaks into time. The teacher begins Ecclesiastes by saying, Hevel, Hevel, utterly Hevel, everything is Hevel. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, and then it hurries back to where it came from. The wind blows to the south and to the north. It goes round and round. All streams flow into the sea, but it never gets full. In other words, time marches on. And from the perspective of the teacher, that slow and steady march of time is evidence that life is hevel, that it's beyond our control, that we can't manage it. We are limited by our time. We each get 24 hours in a day, seven days in a week, and 365 days in a year, and we know that we're not even guaranteed that, right? And that's frustrating. It's really annoying. It's Hevel. But at Christmas, we're told that the maker of time stepped into time. Christmas tells us that the word of God entered into the limitations of time and brought eternity into contact with time. And it's this union of time and eternity that is part of the great mystery of this thing we call the incarnation. God becoming flesh and dwelling with us. Jesus, fully God and fully man. Jesus, both eternal and also bound by time. Time and eternity brought together, connected in this beautiful and mysterious way in Jesus. And so it's through him through the word that you and I can then be connected to eternity. When we trust in Jesus, we are told that we are in him. We are covered by him. And while we continue to be limited by time here on, on, under the sun, and we continue to experience all the frustrations and annoyances of that, we also at the same time as believers live in eternity. When we are connected to him, we can have a vision for our life that is beyond the 80 or 90 or 100 years of this life. We know that eternity has opened up to us through our connection to the eternal word of God who entered into time and made eternity available to us. The second piece of evidence that the teacher gives to us is our experience of the world as a place of chance. Things happen that shouldn't happen, right? There is a randomness about life in our world that is disturbing. Sometimes bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. And here under the sun, there doesn't seem to be any clear logic or reason to it all. The teacher tells us that this experience of life as chance is another bit of evidence that our life is hevel. But John chapter 1 says that Jesus is the word. The Greek word translated as word is logos, not legos, logos. Logos is where we get the word logic. 
John is using a concept here by using this word logos that was very familiar with Greek philosophers at this time. Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, all those, you know, dead, smart, old guys. Greek philosophers, they use this word logos quite a bit. And they use it to describe this divine principle that ordered the whole world. The Greek philosophers and their observation about nature and their observation about politics and their observation about human life, they could see that underneath all of that, behind all of that, in and through all of that was order and reason. And they use the word logos to describe that order and reason. In fact, the word logos can be translated rightly into English as reason, which makes John 1 kind of interesting. In the beginning was the reason. And the reason was with God, and the reason was God. And the reason became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That works too, doesn't it? In the beginning was the logos, the word, the logic and reason of all creation. From our perspective of life here under the sun, many of the things that happen to us, many of the things that we see don't make any sense. From our perspective under the sun, it's all chance. But the divine word, the logos of God, has entered into the world and has made contact with this seeming randomness and chance of our world, and he brings meaning into it. Sometimes this meaning can be recognized and discovered by us as we seek him. At other times, at least here under the sun, we can't see the meaning. But through faith in the logos, the reason, the word of God, we can know that God is transforming all things and bringing them about toward his good reason. By faith, we see that the history of the world and the history of your particular life is not left to chance. The eternal word of God entered thirdly into evil and suffering. Evil and suffering are real. And the teacher in Ecclesiastes is in despair over evil. In chapter 11, he says, However many years a man may live, let him live and enjoy them all. But remember that the days of darkness are coming and that they will be many. In chapter 4, after reflecting on the evil of our world, the teacher concludes that it would really be better to never have been born than to see and to experience the evil and suffering that we see in our world. And all of us have felt that way in one way or another in our lives. If all that we have, if all that exists is just what we can see under the sun, then in the face of the evil of evil, the teacher is right that we would be better off never to have been born at all. But I want to tell you today that there is much, much better news than that available to us. There is something more good and more true and more beautiful. There is a far more satisfying conclusion that we can come to in the face of evil. And it comes because there is something new under the sun. The only thing better than never seeing evil at all, the only thing better and more satisfying is to see the real ugliness of evil and to watch God transform it into something beautiful. And that's what the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is all about. The gospel is this, that the Son of God took on flesh, 
entered into our world and experienced all of the evil and suffering of our world. He experienced mockery and insults. He experienced the abandonment and betrayal of his friends. He experienced slander and lies told to him. People spit on him and despised him. And he carried his own cross and he was nailed to it. And on that cross, he suffered and he died. And that death was a victory over evil. All of us have the question of why God allows evil and suffering to happen. And the Bible and the gospel doesn't fully answer all of our why questions. That's what the book of Job is all about. That question is not fully answered for us. Why God allows all of these things. But the question that is fully answered for us is the how question. How God will respond to the evil and suffering of our world. And he, will re- he responded to it in the cross. The gospel tells us how God dealt with evil. He dealt with evil by allowing himself to experience it, to suffer through it, to place the whole weight of it on his own shoulders, and to never turn to evil in order to overcome it. Jesus never once turned to evil or responded to his enemies with evil. He always endured that suffering. And through that act on the cross, he entered into death, that great enemy that all of us face. Jesus, the word of God, faced death. He endured it. And what we find out in the gospel is that because he endured it and because he suffered through it, that you and I don't need to be afraid of this hell world anymore. In the book of Revelation, John sees the risen Jesus, and he bows before him. And Jesus places his right hand on John, and he says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. I am the living one. I was dead. Behold, now I am alive, and I hold the keys of death. He experienced death. He went into the tomb He got the keys of death for us there and set us free. We do not need to be afraid. The teacher in Ecclesiastes talks about death more than anything else. The fact of death, the finality of death, it really bothers the teacher. And part of what bothers the teacher is that he says we can't know what comes after death. But in Jesus, this one who is new under the sun... Through him, we don't have to live in ignorance about what's after death. He has shown us that eternal life with God is available to us. The last piece of evidence that the teacher gave to us that life is hevel is that God and his ways are unknowable and that God is an unknowable mystery. Here under the sun... With our own fallen, fallen human capacity, God is unknowable. But the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God made knowable. Paul tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the exact representation of the being of God. When we see Jesus, we see God. And our scripture tells us today that Jesus is the word of God. God sent his word to us so that we can know him. You know, it's possible to know a lot about someone without ever speaking to them. When I was growing up, my favorite baseball player was Lou Whitaker. Does anyone know who Lou Whitaker is? Sweet Lou. 
second baseman for the Detroit Tigers. He led off for them, and he wore number one. So guess what I did? I played second base. (laughs) I led off, and I wore number one. And back then, I could tell you a lot of things about Sweet Lou. How many home runs he hit, what his batting average was. I knew a lot about Lou Whitaker, but I could never say that I met him. I could never say that I knew him. We don't say that we know someone until they've spoken to us. The teacher in Ecclesiastes knew a lot of things about God, but he did not know God. Through religion, it's possible to learn lots of things about God. Through observing nature, it's possible to learn lots of things about God. But you can't know God unless you know Jesus, because he is the word of God spoken to us. God has spoken to us through Jesus. In the past, God spoke in many times and in many ways through his prophets. But in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. The word made flesh who came and lived with us. God made knowable. In the incarnation, something happened. In the incarnation, when the word of God took on flesh and made his dwelling among us, at that moment, God and humanity were joined together as one. Eternity and time connected together. The Alpha and the Omega, the author of history, the Logos, the reason and logic of God entered into the chance nature of our world and brought his order. The perfect and holy God entered into our sinful and profane world. The timeless one who has no end and no beginning was born and he died. The unknowable God became knowable. When the word became flesh, there was something new under the sun. There was a person living under the sun who experienced all the frustrations and disappointments of our life. This hevel world happened to him just like it happens to us. But in him was the power to transform the hevel of this world into something eternally true and eternally good and eternally beautiful. And this morning, you are invited to come to know him and to know the way that the frustrations and disappointments and failures of your life can be transformed into something truly good and truly beautiful. This morning, you are invited to come to know there is nothing in this life that you need to fear. He has defeated evil and suffering and death for you. He has made himself knowable to you through the word of God made flesh in Jesus Christ. The worship team would come on up. We're going to sing a song. And this morning, if you want to know the word of God made flesh, I invite you this morning to come forward. If you come to this side, someone will come and pray with you. If you've never come to know this word of God made flesh, this is a morning for you to do that. That This would be the first real Christmas for you. For others of you who do know him, this invitation is for you too. Because perhaps the hevel character of our world feels like too much of a burden to you right now. Today is an opportunity for you to remember again here at Christmas that the word of God has become knowable to you. And he has made a way for you to transform all of the circumstances of your life into something true and good and beautiful. 
Our God in heaven, we thank you for this message of Christmas. We thank you that the teacher of Ecclesiastes was kind enough to dash all of our false hopes. Lord, we pray that we would hear his warnings and that we would turn our attention to you, the one who came to us from beyond the sun and lived with us under the sun. Amen.